Arnon. I am not Mike Cactus. I'm Stephen Cannon from Homer. We send you greetings from the Homer congregation. And isn't this awesome? Right? There is a lot going on this weekend. A lot. And it's a great weekend. But I really want you, during this weekend, just to stop, pause, and just look around at where you are and who you're with. Right? It's been a long time. And just to think, all of us have these trials in our life. We have we have struggles at work. We have struggles at home. But all of us, through Jesus, have come over that, and we are here together. And everyone is here to be uplifted and renewed. But also, everyone is here to renew you. So while you're here, focus on that. Get encouraged by those around you. And when you're encouraged, encourage that person beside you. Because that's why we're here. All united in Christ. So I'll start with creating me a clean heart. Created me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me, created me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me.
Good morning. Good morning. It is a joy to be with you. If God's been good to you, say amen. amen. We serve a good God. It always feels, I believe, heavenly to get to be together like this. I feel very blessed to get to travel throughout Alaska, to visit with congregations throughout the state, to work amongst all of you in different ways, different times, in trying to, to serve and bless and to, to work alongside you and what God is doing throughout the state. And we serve a very active God. He does not take days off. He is very involved in all of our lives and in all of our communities in ways we don't even understand. He is so, so proactive. I look around and getting to see you all here together yeah, instead of being out in Fairbanks or Isleson or Homer, Anchor Point and Anchorage and uh, the Valley and Wasilla and Seward and Valdez and Kodiak and uh, Juno and looking around here, getting to see all these different um, brothers and sisters from all these different locations throughout the state uh, is, I find, heavenly. And being all together with the Lord is a is a wonderful thing, is a beautiful thing, and it always thrills my soul. The passage we're looking at this morning is going to be in the book of Mark, if you want to turn there in your Bibles or on your phones. Mark seven fourteen through 23 is the assigned passage that I had received for this lectureship. And we're looking at Jesus addressing the heart of the problem. And Jesus is going to say that the heart of the problem is the heart of man. That it's from man's heart that um, there's a defilement that can happen. And so we're going to look at this going straight into it. Starting in verse 14, Jesus is saying, He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. I want to highlight here that Jesus is wanting the people listening to him to understand what he's saying. He's wanting them not just to, to, to hear the words, but to understand the meaning and the implications within them. When I was in Bible school, I had a teacher named Gerald Payton who was, at the time, uh, pretty advanced in years, and he had since passed away only a few years after I had his class with him. And I'm pretty good at retaining information, listening to to a lecture, uh, and so I sometimes I, I look kind of relaxed. And during one of his classes, I think I, I was leaning back, I had my hands behind my head as he's talking, and I'm just soaking it all in like a sponge. And... As he was talking and he was he was teaching very, very well, he stopped and he just looked at me and he said, Mike, write this down. I only got a few years left and you need to be remembering this. And so I just got my attention and I dropped my hands quite quickly and started writing. And, and I think of that here where Jesus had three years of ministry and he knew that his time was limited and and Jesus wants people to understand what he's teaching and I can just hear Jesus's emotion in saying hear me all of you and understand he is so committed and wants his people wants everyone to understand the things that he is teaching so Jesus is all in on this and he doesn't want anybody to to fall through the cracks in the things that he is he is teaching he wants people to understand not just accept things to be true. 
I think of the difference between knowledge and wisdom, of knowledge being information and wisdom being the application of knowledge. He wants people that are listening to him to apply these things that he is teaching. And so we're going to look at what he says here in Mark 7 and pray to uh, apply it to our lives as we understand it from, from Christ. He then goes on to say, There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person that defile him. This is the core text of this passage, and the rest of it's going to be revolving around this teaching, that this idea of, of defilement. Defilement's not, defile is not really a word we use in our common language now in, in English. We don't really say, oh, that's defiled. Um, this word defile is a word for making something no longer holy. So holy is something that's set apart. We remember that from lots of our Bible class, something that is taken from common to now something that is special, as something that's set aside um, by God. And then to defile something is to take something that has been set aside, something that's holy, and then put it back and making it common again. And that's this defilement, where God has sent something aside, and now it's being put back into its commonality. So when we're talking about something defiling, we want to understand this definition. So this idea of defiling is what we're going to be talking about. What defiles a person? So after Jesus said this, the crowds dispersed. In verse 17, when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And I want to give kudos to the disciples at this time because they had at least the the desire to seek to understand. They didn't just scratch their heads and just like, well, that was weird, and then just went on with their day. But they let they inquired, they were inquisitive with Jesus. And I think of the Bereans, I think of many other scriptures that that highlight the importance of seeking to understand what God has said. And so the disciples had that spirit here. I think that shows the heart of a disciple. And if we claim to be disciples that should be part of our character, too, that we seek to understand. We don't just say, that was weird. We don't just say, that sounds nice. But we look to see, what does this actually mean, and how do we apply this in our lives? We though next see this next verse, see some, um, some humble pie being served up, where Jesus says to the disciples that are asking, he said to them, are you also without understanding? Robert, looks like you and I made our PowerPoints together. So, <laughs> Are you also then without understanding? I find this humbling because I see here that you can be around Jesus for years and still not understand something. And that, that can take some... Um, some humility to from listening to Jesus, like, are you also then without understanding that we don't always have it all figured out, that we still have some learning to do, and that's something we should accept, that we still have some learning to do. Jesus tells him, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and then is expelled? So some the things that we eat and, and drink, they don't stay with us permanently. They, they pass through us. And I know we shouldn't get too nutritionally bogged down in this with our modern understanding of food that 
what we do eat can have some really negative effects to us, but on a spiritual sense, you are not what you eat, and what we eat does not have direct doesn't have any spiritual uh, ramifications on you. There's no foods and drinks that are inherently um, evil. And now, Mark, the author of this gospel, he puts in here a um, a footnote of sorts where he says, "Thus he declares all food clean," and so. God made food and animals. We read in Genesis that he made it good. God likes his stuff. The things that he made, none of it is inherently evil. I think of a piano and how on a piano there are no good keys or bad keys just on the piano. You don't have a key that's good, good, good. Oh, that key's bad. Don't touch that key. Good key, good key, good key, good key. That every key on that piano is good or bad depending on what song you're trying to play. And God has a, a design and a direction and a purpose for how this life is to be to his design. And so when this life is lived out by his design, it's this beautiful song. But when we play a different song, where we take these parts of life and we overemphasize certain things, there's now this discord, this chaos, this um, something that's not the song that God has designed for us to play, to live. And so the point of this lesson is it's what's coming out of our life that matters. It's what is emitting out from us, what's rippling out from our lives, that is what is significant. That is what can possibly defile a person. So what song are we playing? What is projecting out from us? He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Our lives ripple out around us. Each one of us has a song that we're playing. It's either God's song or it's not. But the way that we live, the choices we make, ripple out from us into the world. And the question is, what's coming out from us? Is it something from God? Or is it coming from somewhere else? And anything other than God is defiling. There's three reasons people make choices. Two of them have been quite well known in psychology. And the third now is being uh, more talked about in psychology. And the three motivations behind choices people make. The first is nature, is how you're born and just the chemical makeup in your mind, your personality, your um, your inherent characteristics is your is your nature. You might have a chemical imbalance or you might have a personality that has you more agreeable or disagreeable or more prone to be angry or less angry. And there's all these different factors that is just your inherent default setting makeup of who you are and your personality. The second is nurture. The way that you're raised, the conditions that you've experienced leading up to this point, your childhood, either trauma or things being invested and disciplined into you. And so you have your nature and you have your nurture. And for a long time, people thought those were the two, the only two factors into how you make decisions. Well, now there's a third that's being recognized uh, in psychology, and that is uh, mind. There's nature, nurture, and now mind, that the human mind is capable of making choices that go directly against 
the, the personality is leaning them towards or that something that they are raised or that they were traumatized to perhaps um, believe and act like, that people can choose to go in a different direction than what their own personality or their own upbringing would push them towards. I see that a lot looking at the Old Testament where you look at the kings of Israel where you have these godly amazing kings have totally rotten children and you have very rotten kings end up having very godly children and that our environment and our own personalities do influence what choices we make but ultimately the choice that we make is from our own minds and we have a, a an independence in that and it's those choices it's those choices that ripple out. Those are what those ripples are, are the actions we choose to make with our lives. When I was uh, in high school, I, uh, I found myself developing a bad habit of not wanting to make choices. Where if I had three different choices to make for something, if I was going to hang out with this person, that person, this person, or what I was going to do that weekend, I would I'd have lots of options, and I would instead, instead of making a choice, I would roll a dice to see what I was going to do. So one or two, I'll do this. Three or four, I'll do that. And a five or six, I'll do this. Roll a dice. And my dad saw me do that, and he stopped me, and he said, don't do that. Don't do that. It's better to make a wrong choice than to make no choice. Because if you give up the ability to make choices, you're not going to be able to make good choices. And so learning to... I need to choose things and then think about how and what am I choosing. And instead of just going with the flow of the world around me, I need to start being proactive in thinking about what, what choices can I make and should I make. And then what ripples am I causing out from me. And so the things that matter for our lives are what choices are we making. Jesus goes on to say, For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. So heart and mind, there's an overlapping of heart and mind, but they are different. And the heart of man is where evil thoughts in our in our lives come from. And on that point, I want to to make a challenging remark. In looking at history, I've noticed that when we talk about, let's say, the Nazis, we tend to demonize them in the sense where we we make them like almost we dehumanize them like there's these monsters from from history and certainly their their choices they made were monstrous and evil but they were very human and you and I are very human and the capability for evil the amount of malevolence and disconnect from God is something we are very capable of we, we need to share and understand as humanity what evil and rebellion our hearts are capable of. And looking at scripture, I tend to want to see myself as only the, the virtuous and the heroic and the faithful and to see myself as, as David and as Joshua, but knowing also I'm just as capable of being Judas and Ahab and Jezebel and I'm capable, anybody human in here, I'm capable of being just like them because I have a human heart and taking responsibility of that like this this thing that is within me is capable of great obedience and also great rebellion in my personal experience I think that there's really two kinds of people and they turn to either be stars or black holes 
stars in the sense of that they, they emit, they shine, they provide orbits and life and things are structured and healthy and good around them and they, they provide for others and, and, or there's a black hole in which everything is about itself and the closer things get to it, the worse things are and everything is trying to be consumed into it. And so I want, with that in mind, to read a passage from Ezekiel 36. You'll turn with me over there. Ezekiel 36, 26, talking about this heart problem that we have. God promises us in verse 26 of chapter 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The human heart has a massive problem and only God can fix it. And God has fixed it through Christ. And what we're going to look at now is a, a list of all the nasty ways a heart gets defiled that Jesus is going to talk about. And with this list, it's pretty rugged. And I challenge us to have the humility to see our hearts stumbling into each one of these things that Jesus is going to talk about, but also to have the hope of knowing that our hearts are capable of descending this low, that with Christ our hearts are capable of ascending infinitely higher than the depths that they drag into. And we're going to look at what our hearts are capable now and look at this list that Jesus highlights that our hearts can do to see the contrast between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. So the first thing that Jesus mentions here is these evil thoughts. And we're going to now look at those specifics of evil thoughts. And it's important to be specific sometimes. I notice I sometimes almost deceive myself with saying things like, yeah, I still got a lot of growing to do. Like, yeah, I sin all the time. It's like, well, it's important to be specific. If I'm like, yeah, I sin, is that me confessing sins or is it just admitting that I do sin? Because there's a big, there's a big difference. And here Jesus is going to get specific and I hope we see ourselves in this and recognizing that these are things that we stumble into. The first is sexual immorality. This is any sexual activity outside of a married man or woman. So that encompasses fornication, that encompasses homosexuality, it encompasses um, anything outside of a, a marriage between a man and a woman. And the the black hole of that is the is any deviation from a marriage. The the light of that, the positive of that, is the exclusive intimacy of of a marriage between a man and a woman. The next he highlights there is now theft. The taking of something that's that's not yours, and then the positive side of that would be to be cheerfully giving. Next is murder, to take life. There's different motivations for murder, typically of of power, of of sex, or of position, of trying to control. We look at the Sermon on the Mount, and we see that that while the physical action of murder uh, may not be taking place, that hatred is spiritually equivalent. To murder, and I find that to be very convicting. There's a lot of hatred in our hearts sometimes. There's a lot of hatred towards, uh, I hear, uh, towards people far away that we've never met in person. Let me perhaps make a point of this. If there was some politician out there, whatever party, 
of someone you strongly disagree with, if that politician or even world leader that you strongly disagree with had their plane crash with him on it or brain aneurysm and they died, would you be happy? What's, and if so, what's causing that? Are you wanting them to come to know the love of the Lord? Or are you wanting them to be removed as, because they're an a opposition to what you would like to see happen? Do we hate them? That's a question we have to ask ourselves. The opposite of this heart that would desire murder would be a heart that desires life, that wants to provide life for people. I look at Moses' life, and I look at him who he sees as Egyptian, and he wants to remove this man because he's getting in the way of what he wants. But then I look at Moses now following the heart of God, where instead of taking life, he now provides life by leading an entire people out of slavery into a promised land. And you look at the power that has on the world when we have a heart that God gives us instead of following our hearts, we can quickly see that this world gets totally reshaped in a much different way. Next we have adultery. And this is, of course, sexual and intimate disloyalty to a marriage. And the light of this would be the honoring of marriage by all, which we see uh, in Hebrews. Next is, is coveting. It's desiring and craving something that's not yours. The light of this would be contentment and gratitude. And I once read that it's not the happy people who are thankful, it's the thankful people who are happy. And when we have an attitude of contentment and gratitude, um, it totally pushes away coveting and thinking that we are not content. Next is wickedness. This is a disobedience. And I think of the parable of the, of the talents and the one talent servant who hid his master's talent and the rebuke of the master told him was, you slothful and wicked servant. And wickedness of I always kind of grew up thinking of wickedness as like sorcery and witchcraft and like demon summoning and a bunch of just kind of, you know, outlandish like wickedness. But wickedness is really just disobedience to our master. And that's something that we certainly do stumble with. Next is deceit. This uh, lying, untruth. I think of masks that we wear, where we put on a front. I had this, uh, my journaling a few weeks ago, I had this kind of idea of, of puppeteers, in that we are all kind of, we get to choose how we present ourselves to people, and that we're capable of putting on a, a mask, putting on a show, and, and puppeteering our own faces and our own, um, our own, our own uh, lives. I was thinking of uh, what Robert saying yesterday about going through the motions that we're cap- that that type of puppeteering of ourselves is living a lie because it's not actually who and what we are when we do that. And the danger of that is is quite immense. Satan is the father of lies. And it's how he devours people is through lies when it, because it's Christ who sets us free because he's the truth. The truth sets us free. What's he setting us free from? Well, the truth sets us free from lies and lies all come from Satan. And also when we're puppeteering ourselves and we have this, when we're living with, with deceit, we're trying to deceive people from what we actually are, 
We have these puppets of ourselves that we're trying to orchestrate to, to, to cause something that we think should happen. When we do that, the real harm isn't just that we're not being true and honest in ourselves. The, one of the major dangers is that we don't get to actually connect and be loved because people are connecting and serving with the puppet that we're presenting and not actually us. It's a disconnect from our own selves to the people around us. And so in the church and as God's people, if we're falling into deceit, we're trying to put on something that's not real, then we're causing people to interact with someone that doesn't even exist because it's not you. And so it's so essential for us to be set free from this, to be, to be genuine, to be, to be honest. And the thing about honesty, which is the light side of this, honesty is short-term pain for long-term comfort. It's hard to be honest in the moment because it's uncomfortable and it's vulnerable, but it, there's a long-term comfort and peace from the short-term pain of being honest in the moment. The opposite is true where deceit, there's short-term comfort in getting to avoid an awkward situation, but there's a long-term pain, long-term suffering from trying to operate a puppet your entire life. Next is sensuality that Jesus says. This is debauchery, outrageousness, filthiness. And the opposite of this would be modesty and that it's okay to be attractive. I think of Ruth and Boaz and how Ruth made it very clear that she was interested in in Boaz by uncovering his feet and sleeping at his feet there and that type of situation that um, it's okay to be attractive and attracted to to a person. Next is envy, and the Greek word for this envy is an evil eye, and it's the, where coveting is where you want a thing, envy is where you hate a person and see them as uh, an opponent and an, as an obstacle. You think of Cain and Abel and how Cain didn't just want to have good sacrifices, he saw Abel as an obstacle and as an enemy, and, and his killing him was from this, this evil eye of, of envy. And the opposite of this, the, or rather the, the light of this, would be, instead of envying others, seeing them as opponents, it would be hope, like how love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, and that when we look at people, we see them uh, not as obstacles or opponents, but we see all that they could be, and we hope for the absolute best for them. My instructor, Gerald, the one that told me to write faster and actually use my hands, he was the one that... Um, had inspired me with this idea of whenever you interact with somebody, go into that interaction with the desire for that, by the end of your interaction, that that person will think better about God and better about themselves. That that would be your mission. That every single person you come to contact with, boy, the time that they get done interacting with you, they now think better about themselves and better about God. And having that Mission going into any certain conversation, whether it's a 30-second coffee that you're just passing by with somebody, or whether you're going to go spend the weekend with a friend, no matter what, going into every interaction with a person with that attitude um, doesn't leave any room for envy. and allows you to go in with this, with a, an, an unconditional love for someone. Next we have slander. The word here for slander is the same word for it's blasphemy, and it's to speak evil of what is good. We need to be so careful of what and who and whose we speak about. And what a different world 
we would live in if everyone spoke truth and good instead of speaking evil of something that is good. Now this next one, something we never struggle with, pride. The Greek word here for pride, I just laughed looking and uh, preparing for this. The Greek word for this literally means excessive shining. And I just thought that was so great. Such a good definition for pride. Excessive shining. It's like, hey, it's okay. Can you just tone that down a little bit, please? It's a little bright. It's a little early in the morning, please. If you don't think that you're prideful, then you're prideful. (laughs) And also, if you're around lots of humble people, then you think that you're humble. But if you're in the room with someone else who's prideful, when you're prideful, it definitely rears its ugly head quite quickly. This elevation of self, which is what this excessive shining is, is, is what pride narrows down to. And what's so gross about pride is it is a form of usurping the creator. Where God says, I created you and I created you this. And then for you to say, actually, I'm more than that is a form of rebellion and usurping of, of God. And it really is um, one of the most currently prevalent problems we face right now in our lives is this trap of, of pride. And I'm going to say a few things to highlight that. Getting to work with different congregations throughout Alaska and also down in the lower 48 and being in ministry for, the, for these last years, I've seen there's this false humility that we can fall into where we talk about we talk about denominations and we talk about other groups of believers and what ends up happening is we say things like we still have a lot to learn, we're not perfect. But the quiet part out loud is, but we're the closest thing to it. Because we're quick to point out the false teaching that's out there, the errors in people's doctrine, which there are no shortage of of inappropriate and uh, misunderstood things from Scripture. But what ends up happening is this... trying to demonstrate our faithfulness by comparing ourselves to others. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing. There's only two people, two kinds of people in my life that I've seen where the putting down of others and the propping up of themselves takes place. Only two two kinds of people I've seen do that. Those are bullies and people who are drowning. Or when people push people down to prop themselves up. If we need to point out the flaws of other people and other groups to try to demonstrate our faithfulness, something has gone horribly wrong. And being stuck in any rut, someone once told me and put it this way, a rut is just a grave with two sides knocked out. And so all these things that defile a person, we have to be so sensitive to make sure that, that we're not getting stuck in any of these things. And pride is, is something that is so easy for us to fall into to where we can think, like, uh, 
Yeah, we've studied, we're searching, we're trying to have sound doctrine, but if we are trying to justify ourselves or demonstrate our faithfulness because we're comparing ourselves to other people and other groups or other um, beliefs, instead of comparing ourselves to Christ and to be his people and his church, something has gone horribly wrong. The next is foolishness. Foolishness is a lack of perspective. It's flippancy, which is something that I believe demons love. Because when someone is flippant, as James would say, wisdom from above is open to reason. And so the opposite of that is just, things just bounce off of you. You don't have an ear that hears where you just are quick to disregard something that's being spoken to you. So the opposite of this is, like I just mentioned, open to reason, like we see in James. And then lastly here, Jesus says, All these evil things come from within, and it is they that defile a person. I find it interesting that of all these things that Jesus mentioned that defile a person, all of them are some forms of mistreatment towards someone. Whether that someone is God, another person, or yourself, each one of these is a mistreatment of a relationship. And something else that Jesus is clearly showing here is that the the defilement, the things that make things not holy anymore, the problem, the problem is not on the outside. The problem is not out in the world. The problem is not food that you may or may not be eating. The problem is also not the system, the government, the schools, the politicians, the problems are not out there. The evil and the problems of the world come from right here. From within our own hearts is where things are rippling out. And if we can be tricked into thinking that the problems are out there instead of in here, then we have been devoured. So the, the call here, the point here... The concern for defilement is that we, we have a heart problem as humans. And we need God to give us a new heart. Because our hearts are messed up. Humanity's heart is broken. It's stone. It's not just like weak. It's dead. And we need a new heart. And that's the good news. There's new hearts. There's new hearts to be given. And it's the heart of Christ which is so different than just a do-over. It's so different than just a restart and a reset. I want us to go to a verse that you've probably heard of once before. And we're going to go to Acts 2.38. So let's go over there together as we wrap up this lesson together. Acts 2.38. This is... The Apostle Peter giving the first gospel sermon and multitudes listening to him and their response to hearing the good news. And Peter tells them, verse 38, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
How many hundreds, maybe thousands of times have you heard or read that verse? So much. Baptism is a word in that verse, which is very true, but this passage is not about baptism. This passage is about a forgiving God who gives a gift of his Holy Spirit, and part of that gift is a new heart. You see, what God provides is not just a clean slate, is not just a blank, where our lives being this canvas and our choices that we make, as we saw, is quite filthy, the choices we're capable of making, and we've all made in different ways. And But what God provides is not just looking at this canvas full of all this muck and filth and our sins and just wiping all that stuff off and then just having this blank canvas and giving it back for you. He's like, now make good choices. That's not what happens. And what we just saw here in Acts is that he removes all of that sin. He removes it completely. It's this blank, perfect, pristine, clean canvas. And then on top of that canvas, he then paints the Mona Lisa. He paints a masterpiece that couldn't have come from you because he's putting his own spirit in you. He's not just giving your heart a do-over. He's giving you his heart. He's giving you his spirit. And that's this abundant life. And what I hope to put into your minds through what we're looking at, we're looking at here at Scripture, and the heart of the matter is that as God's people, we can now have the heart of God. And it's not about just you having an avoidance of sin. Abundant life is just, it's not about not sinning. It's about being like Christ and looking through all these deranged attributes our hearts can have is realizing when you have the heart of Christ, not just how how different that is, but how healing that is and how world-changing that is. And so my challenge for us all here is to have the heart of God and to see that in Christ and to find his heart in his word and let it sink in deep to our souls. So I thank you all for listening and participating here with us and make sure that we, um, we're not defiled, but we're holy as he is holy. And we have his heart and none others. Thank you. Thank you there, Mike, for, for that. I do appreciate it. I know we all appreciate you reminding us the heart of the matter. It's getting right down to it. I uh, want to mention to you all, I know that here on our schedule it says lunch is at 11 o'clock, and we're going to try to get it around that time. Um, but you know, if you ever have done anything like this, scheduled anything, uh, sometimes things get pushed a little bit. That's fine. If you look at your schedule, the very next time that we meet for anything in the, in the auditorium or in one of the classes is at 1.30. And so while we're running just a little bit behind for lunch, you'll still have time to eat and talk and fellowship and do all the things.